I'm Brandon Katz. And I'm Jean Bentley. Today, we are really, really excited to welcome film critic extraordinaire Dan Merle to the show to talk about our favorite Netflix original movies of 2020. Dan, thank you so much for coming on, my man. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's an honor for us. You know, we, we want to talk to smart, intelligent, informed, insightful guests, and you fit the bill, my friend. As I was telling you off air, I've been following you since I was in college. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel very old, but I very much appreciate hearing that. <laughs> I was going to say, congratulations. You are old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I, I'm glad that I get the chance to talk today, especially about Netflix, because it's it's such a new corner in the movie space, but they're they're making so much great stuff at this point. Absolutely. And with Fox now under the Disney banner, I think one could argue Netflix is the sixth major film studio in the market at the moment. Now, in terms of their 2020 output, what we're going to do for the listeners at home is each person is going to select one film that they thought was, you know, a, a top tier Netflix original. They're, they're going to give their reasoning for it. We're going to open up the floor for some cross-cutting, quick dialogue and conversation about that movie. And then we'll move on to the next one until each person has picked two films that represent their kind of creme de la creme of the Netflix original library this year. Uh, Dan, since you are our honored guest, we want to give you the floor first, my friend. Oh, sure. Uh, so I wanted to talk about Mank, which is David Fincher's new film. And it was at the top of my list when I was looking at what what I wanted to see in 2020. Because really, if David Fincher's making a movie about anything, it's going to go at the top of my list. I'm a big cinephile, obviously. I love Citizen Kane. I love the story behind it. I, I, perhaps that may be why I enjoyed Mank, but uh, it, it wasn't exactly what I thought I was going to get going in because y you think that it's going to be the story of the making of one of the classic movies of all time, but then it, it goes a very deep dive into like 1930s California gubernatorial politics. <laughs> it, it, it was really the focus of it was so much wider than I came in expecting, and I think it's it's good for a movie sometimes to surprise you. But Mank is one of the movies, and it's been a couple weeks since I've seen it now. It's one of the movies I've seen this year that I'm still trying to process and still trying to figure out what exactly I thought of it because so much of it is done so well. And it's almost like you have to just sit and stew on it and maybe watch it again before you can come to a final decision, which is fine. Actually, I don't think anyone ever really comes to a final decision on anything. I think you just revisit it and, and reevaluate as you get older and as things change. Dan, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that it was kind of outside the realm of initial expectations, because to me, it didn't very much feel like a David Fincher film. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. I wanted to get your take on on how it kind of compares to what we've come to know and expect from David Fincher. Well, I like that he is he's branched out, and, and I think it would have been very easy for him to allow himself or for he himself to get sort of pegged as the dark director. Like, every David Fincher movie is a dark, twisted, you know, journey into the mind. And, and certainly he has made many of those films and, and continues to make those movies. But I like the fact that this was not necessarily that. This was him doing historical drama, and, but still bringing that, that very singular style to it. And that's what I love when you look at directors as they get the clout and they get the ability to branch out is you could you, you, you kind of look at the early works of somebody and you say like, oh, he's this kind of director. I like that David Fincher is still showing us what kind of director he is. And even when you go to things like the score from 
Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, when you think about that kind of music, you think you know what that music is going to sound like. And this score was not that at all. It was very classic Hollywood. It still had that edge to it. But what I what I love about Fincher at this point in his career is that he is continuing to surprise me as a fan and as a film goer, and 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 I think probably also surprise himself and challenge himself. And I think that's what keeps a filmmaker over decades from becoming stagnant is is figuring out new ways to use your same skill set but to tell different kinds of stories. I have a question for you, Dan. Um, obviously, this is a very beautiful, visually striking film. It shot in black and white. And I'm wondering if there were any David Fincher hallmark, um, visual hallmarks that you could still kind of point out. There were for me, I think that particularly the, 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 the scene I'm thinking of the most is the scene between Mank and, and Marion Davies at uh, San Simeon, where it is, it is to cinematography what the club scene in the social network was to audio, where, you know, when you look at the social network, there's the scene between Jesse Eisenberg and Justin Timberlake that's drowned out almost completely by the, the sound, but it works for that scene. With that scene, it's set at night. It was shot, I believe, day for night much like the old Hollywood way and it is almost completely dark uh, but at the same time you can you can see everything it's not muddled it's not difficult to see but it challenges the norms in my mind of cinematography the same way that that the club scene and social network challenge the norms of sound design and I think you see that through a lot of David Fincher's work. He's he's taking what the rules are and kind of bending them a little bit. Not in a showy way, but in a way that I think works for the style of the movie. And so I remember watching that and being like, that's a very David Fincher thing to do. It just seems like a very Fincher-y move. I think one of my major takeaways from Mank was that all of the Amanda Seyfried hype was so justified that I've actually now become convinced that she was born in the wrong era and she really did belong in golden age 1930s Hollywood. I agree. It kind of reminds me of, you know, in Sunset Boulevard when Norma Desmond's looking at the screen. She's like, you know, back then we had faces like she just has a a face for like in that black and white. She looks like an old silent movie star you could see her being on that kind of level and coming from that golden age of hollywood and and uh i've always i think that she is one of the most underrated actors working today because she has done comedy she's done drama she's done musical Uh, every challenge that's been put in front of her she's excelled at and i'm really hoping that through this movie and then through other things that she really gets the the credit and respect that she deserves because I really think she's an undervalued talent in Hollywood. I mean, who else can pull off Mean Girls and a David Fincher movie? That's not an easy tightrope to walk. It's not. I mean, we'll see if Lacey Chabert is up to the task if she gets the opportunity, but right now Amanda, Amanda Seyfried's leading in the clubhouse. <laughs> Now, for for my selection to just start off, I'm going with The Trial of the Chicago 7. While the movie, in my opinion, never quite elevates into the territory of full-on greatness, I think it is consistently good and enjoyable throughout. Much like his previous filmography, the film very much plays to Aaron Sorkin's strengths with these lengthy courtroom scenes composed of oppositional morality and the numerous conversations espousing the varying approaches and and philosophies of the anti-war movement. Uh, It's clearly an actor showcase overall with strong performances throughout that really helped to sell his famous kind of ping-pong dialogue in a new uh, setting. And while I think I would have liked to see more about the characters themselves in addition to the timely debate that the film clearly supports, 
I ultimately feel like this was a highly entertaining and worthwhile revisionist history lesson told in this sparkly, light-on-its-feet manner that only Sorkin can provide. Yeah, I loved the... um... I love all of the people in that cast. I didn't necessarily think that it was the best showcase for all of them, but you know, you that Aaron Sorkin dialogue is kind of <laughs> it papers very over flaws elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And you know, as a directorial debut, I don't know that it was necessarily the most, you know, dynamic film visually, but I do think that Sorkin is kind of at home in the procedural venue right like a like a political or a courtroom or whatever kind of setting so i think he does thrive in that environment i I think this was his second feature after molly's game so he's clearly still you know uh getting used to being behind the camera and not just at the typewriter even though we all have computers and he's probably not writing at a typewriter (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe he strikes me as the type that maybe maybe could but no he's he's, i'm sure he's writing at a computer he could Uh, be going full george r R. martin with it well if he if he was going full george r R. martin we wouldn't have seen the movie yet it'd come out sometime around 2029 (laughs) excellent point i i think i'm a sucker for what i call verbal action movies where like the action is dialogue driven like network is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time and that movie is just talking from start to finish so i I was a bit of an easy mark for trial of chicago 7 and i really 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 liked the movie i i I do agree it's it's maybe not quite doesn't quite achieve the level of greatness but i think that it was well cast well written the dialogue was spot on and and i think it was relevant without being obvious it, it didn't feel like it was a bit of a try hard to like see, but it's like today's times. I think it is a timeless movie that is going to have, it's going to flip in and out of relevance as the times change around it, which is what a lot of the best movies do. Yeah. I think that's such a great point because it's not, I don't even think it's necessarily that he set out to make something so politically relevant and that would come out in 2020. It's just that uh, history is kind of cyclical, right? <laughs> Things come back around. Yeah. And that's yeah. definitely uh, something that we're seeing. All right. Moral yeah. of the story is humanity is just consistently terrible in every decade and era, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, yes. that's it, it's it's but Aaron Sorkin is a, is a screenwriter who is driven to these sort of timeless stories when. I did a, an episode of my my show about the social network uh, a few weeks ago, and when he was talking about it, he's like, "I didn't make a movie about Facebook. I made a movie about jealousy and friendship and all of this stuff." And it's it's almost like the the big banner events that he's writing about are just the table setting for him to write these different thematic meditations on on all of these different things. And so I think for, in this case, it was this historic event, but it is it is all about loyalty, fairness, justice. And uh, and I and I think that it works really well in that regard. And not to jump around too much, but I like what you said, Dan, when you first started verbal action movie. If we could just go back to Mank for a split second. While I appreciated the film more than I necessarily enjoyed it, what I did love is just lavishing in the long stretches of verbal splendor that Mank provides, which with a sterling screenplay and phenomenal performances. So I, I think they may be spiritual cousins in that regard trial the chicago seven and mank where hey i'm here for these ping-ponging electric conversations i agree i think you're gonna see whenever award season 2020 happens in 2021 i think you're probably gonna see both of these screenplays up for a lot of those uh, categories because i think they're both very well written 
And on that note, let's talk about Enola Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe it won't be in the same category, but but my first pick for my favorite Netflix movie of the year is this delightful, family-friendly, um, beautiful, engaging film about based on a YA novel, I believe, um, about Sherlock Holmes's spunky little sister. And I think that this fits in with what Netflix has been doing on the film side, because it obviously has these prestige dramas that it's going for, you know, um, Mank and, and Trial, of Chicago, Trial of the Chicago 7. But also it has done very well with its YA films, like, um, you know, it, it, the, the, in the rom-com vein and, and, you know, The Kissing Booth and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which both had sequels come out this year that weren't necessarily as good as their first films but that's okay um but this is it starred millie bobby brown who is a homegrown netflix star from stranger things and she also i believe is a producer which i really support um if you're shaping something around a a child star they should get as much input into it creatively as as an adult star would um, and I just thought it was really fun. Um, it was like a little mystery, a little caper, a little a little mischievous uh, youth fun, and and also good for you know all all quadrants of the audience. Like legitimately, my father texted me was like, "Hey, did you watch Nola Holmes this weekend? When's the sequel coming out?" Like. My parents loved it. I loved it. I'm sure kids loved it. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's just really appealing in that vein. And it does set up a sequel very well. And as we know, Netflix has done well with franchising these movies. And so it it, it just felt like a great, it was a bright spot in a uh, tumultuous year, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad because I didn't have a chance to see it yet. It was happening just as we were getting ready for the big cross-country move we did this year. But Millie Bobby Brown is such a like I love the fact that she's on board as a producer and I think she I mean she's already a big star but I think that she is also someone who just as an actor is so everything I've seen her in whether it's Godzilla or Stranger Things or whatever she has such a genuine nature it doesn't feel like an affect or a put on and that's very rare especially in an actor as young as she is and I very much look forward to perhaps around the holidays in a, in a week or two, having a, a bit of a slowdown and getting a chance to sit down and watch this movie because it I, I looked so good and, and I really just love her and, and everything I've seen her in. Yeah, it's pure comfort. It's like you put it on, you know, enjoy, have a little evening. You don't <laughs> fully have to pay attention. It's fine. But it, it's just really engaging. And, and also, as you were saying, it's child stars are interesting and she has definitely played some some wise beyond her years characters and it was fun to see her get to be a teenager and to play a teenager and also to use her British accent, which I feel like a lot of people forget because she does an American one and stranger things. Yeah. I think what's perhaps most surprising and positive is that this is kind of a happy accident. Now this is a legendary film that legendary was really excited to put out in theaters and it only wound up on Netflix because of the unfortunate pandemic situation closing theaters. So Netflix is kind of 
fallen backwards into their next really, really solid YA franchise. Uh, Dan, if you are planning to watch it, I would say because Sherlock has had such a kind of cultural uh, re reinvention of, over the last 2010s, this big comeback, it it's really works well because... It's not a carbon copy of Guy Ritchie's big screen Sherlock films, but it boasts that same kind of pithy, modernized light step. It's not like as visibly bold as Stephen Moffat's BBC Sherlock series, but they do a great job of capturing that same kind of thinking out loud visual aesthetic that turns exposition into more of a snack than a chore. So I actually think you'll be really pleasantly surprised at how effective this movie is and how much you want to return to it. And the fact that, you know, great actors and, and fun pop culture actors like um, uh, Sam Clayfin and Henry Cavill are in it, but aren't even remotely the main focus, and you don't mind at all, is really a testament to Millie Bobby Brown's developing star power. So I'm looking forward to to hearing what you think after you watch it. You might have to come back on the show for a kind of revisitation. Happily, I would, I would, be, I would be very. As we say, the one thing that we have watched, uh, except other on Netflix, when we have time that we just caught up on is The Crown. And so now Mara and I, every time we say we'd be very hippie to do that. Uh, <laughs> I like you have that posh British accent, yes. you know, the royal hippie. kind of arches of vowels. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Thank you. As the queen would say, thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, I personally am quite partial to the little head down bob that everyone has to do when they leave her. I think I'm just going to start doing that to regular people in, in everyday life just to mess with them. So they're like, I don't know if there's something wrong or if he's like really formal or what's going on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Dan, what is your next choice? So uh, the other one I wanted to talk about is one that came out earlier. I, I would usually know the exact season, but sometime in 2020. Was it two months ago? Was it nine months ago? I don't know. Let's say summer. Uh, Spike Lee's to Five Bloods which was one that I still think about that has stuck with me. Sadly, very sadly, I think it's become even more prominent since Chadwick Boseman passed away. He is a small part of the film, but he's a very meaningful and important part of the film. It is a sort of Three Kings-esque search for the gold movie, but it is just as much about these these guys going back and reliving this and, and finding their fallen friend and fallen soldier. And... The one standout, you know, I mean, Chadwick Boseman, obviously, there's been much more focus on his performance again since he sadly passed away. But I think at the same time, I would very much hate for Delroy Lindo to get lost in the shuffle because in a cast of standout performances, this really is a showcase career performance for Delroy Lindo. And the supporting categories, which I think is where they would probably pitch him. I, I don't know. Uh, they may have already made that official. I'm not exactly sure. They're, they always get crowded, and they always generally favor movies that come out later in the awards season. I really hope that Delroy Lindo is not lost in the shuffle because he is phenomenal in this film. Just the idea of looking so honestly at um, race, race in the Vietnam War, PTSD, uh, issues with veterans coming home, being rejected, not just for the fact that you're a Vietnam veteran, but for your race, that double whammy that so many Vietnam veterans faced. I think that Spike Lee juggles so much in that movie, and the ensemble is so strong that it, it is one of those films that I fear is in danger of getting lost, especially in a protracted and extended awards season, which is what we're going to have. 
but I, I have faith and confidence that it is good enough to stay in people's minds because Spike Lee is, is one of those directors right now. I don't think he ever had a real lag in his career, but I think he is certainly experiencing a surge right now, just a real reinvigoration. And, and the, 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 the stuff he's been doing in the last four or five years has just been stellar. I could not agree more in terms of Delroy Lindo. Granted, I have not seen Sir Anthony Hopkins in The Father quite yet, but I think Delroy Lindo gives the best uh, actor performance of the year that I have seen. You know, maybe I'd throw throw him up there with Riz Ahmed at the moment as well in Sound of Metal, but he owns every frame of that movie and has to display every single conceivable emotion that humans are capable of having. It was... It's such an overused term, but it really was a tour de force, in my opinion. I'm a big fan of Delroy Lindo uh, from one of his, like, 75,000 things that he's done (laughs) over the years that we've loved. But also, in recent years, he's on The Good Fight, which is one of my favorite shows, The Good Wife spinoff that's on CBS All Access. And he's so good in it, and you're watching it, and you're like, God, yeah. Why am I? Why is he not always at the top of my mind as just one of the best? He's just so good. <laughs> I, I think that's what's so great about seeing him get this kind of role is I, there's so many. I, I, every time I see Delroy Lindo in a movie, I come out of it just like, oh yeah, Delroy Lindo. He's so great in that movie. I loved him in that movie. But yet he's never the one that gets the center stage and gets the awards consideration. And it's so great to see him be great in a movie and hopefully have a shot at really getting that credit because. He's just someone, you, if he pops up on the screen, you're just like, oh, oh, man. Oh, great. Like, he's he's just such a great actor. Yeah. Well, and also the, the cast of this movie is stacked. Like, obviously, Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo, but there's also, like, Jonathan Majors, who yeah. also had a wonderful year. Uh, Norm Lewis, <laughs> you know, a ton of really great actors who consistently do great work. So, of course, you're going to get that. And I think... One, the only kind of off-putting thing about this movie is that it is literally two and a half hours. <laughs> it is just so long. There's a lot <laughs> packed into it. I'm not. I won't deny that. There's a lot <laughs> packed into it. But that said, you know this giant, amazing powerhouse cast, Spike Lee. Like you're, you're getting some quality entertainment for your time investment because listen are you paying for a ticket for this no you already have a netflix subscription so it is just a really great uh way to spend your time i really loved it too and i really love i'm also loving this era of of spike lee because he's someone who didn't have to evolve he could just sit back and kind of be the elder statesman and just, you know, watch on the sidelines. But obviously, you know, knowing him and and all of the work that he does, he was never going to do that anyway. And just to see him still being so creatively fresh is really wonderful to see. Yeah, I agree. For whatever lack of focus Defy Bloods may occasionally fall into, you're absolutely right, Gene. This cast just really anchors everything. And, And to your point, Dan... I consider Delroy Lindo on that same tier as Michael Stolberg, in which it automatically makes a film 10, 15, 20% better, and yet they never get the credit they deserve, despite years of just turning in consistently great work. Michael Stolberg, the fact that he wasn't nominated for Call Me By Your Name, 
for that scene with him and Timothy Chalamet alone, where they just sit and have that heart-to-heart talk, is one of the best scenes from any actor. I agree. Um, I wish that there was an Academy Awards that was just for like the criminally underappreciated, because it, he's you're right, he's right up there with Del Lindo as far as just like he makes every movie he's in better, and yet never seems to get the big glittery marquee. The criminally underappreciated that guy Oscar, because these are actors who maybe not every moviegoer knows on a name basis, but they're like, oh, it's that guy. I love that guy. Yeah, they need to have like an Oscar, like the Sixth Man Award, like some kind of like you know off on the bench award, uh, because so many actors do that coming in and just kind of not not necessarily having the weight of the film on their shoulders, um, or 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 having the weight of the film on their shoulders, but just crushing it every time. Academy, that one is for free. The next one we want a licensing fee for. But we'll be generous right now on that one. (laughs) All right, for my next one, I am going with Extraction, which is a bit of a left-field choice. Uh, Listen, Extraction, it isn't so much a good film with a clever script and a clear message as it is a perfectly timed bombshell of entertaining fisticuffs. Uh, It arrived on Netflix in, in April right in the thick of our early lockdown when morale was low and the future was increasingly uncertain. And I think kind of at this tumultuous time, Extraction provided the very best action and fight choreography this side of John Wick. Uh, Now, is the movie aimless and lead-footed? Yeah, absolutely. I think those are extremely fair criticisms. But I think the stellar stunt work would have been worth the price of admission in theaters in my book alone, and certainly deserving of the two hours of comfy couch viewing that it requires in these circumstances. Uh, you know, generic characters, generic plot, sure, it's got that. But the technical orchestration of some of these complex action set pieces are among the best in recent memory. So to me, there are far worse ways that you can spend your time than watching Chris Hemsworth on a nonstop, balletic, bone-breaking, ass-kicking spray. Mic drop for extraction. (laughs) (laughs) I I will agree uh, that it definitely treads much trodden ground as far as the character and the story work. However, I was, was... It was early pandemic, very early pandemic, but even still, I was kind of tuning in, just like, eh, okay, yeah, well, let's see. I mean, having the Russo brothers attached uh, in any capacity kind of makes you sit up a little bit. But that really, I think, what won me over is when they got to that wonder that they did, and it was so well executed. And that could have been really kind of showy, and because everyone's doing wonders now, like that's the thing. It's like, oh, let's do one, un- you know, one unbroken shot. Like it, sometimes technically it's not as impressive because of computers and whatnot stitching it together. But it was so well done. Uh, and fit the story and fit the moment for what they were doing that I actually think it is one of the better action films of 2020. And uh, it, yes, it is cliched. Yes, you can see most of the twists coming from a mile away. But at the same time, you know, it's not up to the level of a John Wick, but it's in the ballpark. It's in the ballpark. And, and, and I appreciated it for that. I, too, appreciated it for it just... Just being a solid action movie. I love action movies. I love just being able to sit down and just enjoy, maybe switch off the brain for a little bit and just watch things blow up or whatever. Um, And for that, I give it two thumbs up. And also, (laughs) Chris Hemsworth is (laughs) an actor I love. I will watch him in literally anything. 
did I go to the movie theater at 10 in the morning to watch Rush one weekend, the first weekend it came out? Yeah, sure did. So <laughs> was I going to watch it anyway? Probably. Uh, was I happy that it was such a just like generic good time? Also, <laughs> yes, I really, I had a good time watching it. And that is exactly the level of entertainment that I needed at that time when it came out. Yeah. I also feel the same way about um, The Old Guard, another just like good action movie that came out on Netflix that I enjoyed. <laughs> you know, it, it's just fun. Yeah, I would kind of lump Extraction and The Old Guard and maybe Project Power into the relatively same tier of these are action movies you're going for spectacle or, or individual uh, elements more so than the script or plot. Yeah, Agreed. and listen, they can't all be Mission Impossible Fallout, which is my favorite. <laughs> Finally, my, my last choice is Crip Camp, the documentary that came out earlier this year about a camp in the a summer camp in the 1970s for kids um, and young adults with disabilities. And so it starts with this footage from this camp and you meet all these people and then you kind of also follow along throughout their lives as they um, get into activism and kind of you find out how some of these campers were key figures in getting the ADA passed, um, the American Disabilities Act. And I really liked it because... First, I think I mentioned this last week in our um, best TV of 2020 show, but I have always looked to Netflix as a destination for documentaries, starting back when it was first um, acquiring films from film festivals that wouldn't necessarily get distribution in the same way they would. And that was mainly documentaries. There have been so many amazing documentaries where Netflix was the only place that you could find it. And that has evolved to them producing their own. And I think that this is one very, very fine example in a tradition of great documentary storytelling. It Netflix, uh, won an Oscar just this year for American Factory. I don't, if you haven't seen that, you should absolutely check it out. It's fantastic. It won, I believe it was two years ago for Icarus. And uh, I think that it's just proving that Netflix is a destination for this kind of content. And the reason that I chose Crip Camp over some other fabulous documentaries that came out on Netflix this year is because I needed a little bright spot in my content. And uh, instead of going really dark and and there's a lot of true crime on Netflix, which is fine, but not the mindset that I was in. And so watching something that not only was kind of uplifting by getting to see these kids just like be happy and live their lives, but also see how they were able to affect change for generations for an entire country is like, it's very inspiring. It's very inspiring. Agreed with Netflix as far as documentaries go. I know we talk. I'm a I'm a theater experience stalwart, and and so a lot of times I'll hit on these things of big bad streaming, particularly when you're pulling movies out of theaters. But there is there are a lot of upsides as well, and one of them is that particularly with things like documentaries, which always struggle to find distribution. When you put something like Crip Camp or something like American Factory on Netflix, you are going to reach a 
exponentially larger audience than that film probably would ever have reached with a limited theatrical distribution model. And I think that that's one of the one of the upswings of bringing films to people at home is that you can achieve greater uh, greater exposure for films that would struggle with it otherwise. And we often focus on Netflix's nine-figure-plus attempts and failures to win streaming's first-ever Best Picture Award at the Oscars, and we ignore at the expense the fact that they are dominating the the documentary category in prestige awards. So it's worth supporting and bringing attention to something like that. Unfortunately, Gene, I have actually not seen it, but one reason I love our friendship is because you recommend so many good things that I put on my list. Hopefully one or two things I say ends up on your list. Don't worry. Always, always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we go, Dan, we would just want to uh, set you up front and center. Tell the people at home where they can find you on social. Plug anything you want to plug that you got coming up. The people want to know. Sure. Uh, You can find me on social on Twitter at Merle Dan. That's pretty much where I do everything. I have an Instagram that I'm still learning how to run because I'm a, I'm a, you listen to me in college. I'm a dinosaur. Um, I, I also have a, a podcast of my own. It's called All My Movies. I basically have my movie collection. I take a movie off the shelf. Sometimes I'll combine one or two and just cover it, talk about my experience with it, what I remember seeing it, how it's interwoven into my life, or is it uh, something like, you know, that I picked up for $5 that ha- has no real connection to my life at all, but also the making of the movie and bringing on special guests from time to time. It, it really is just kind of looking at how movies tie into my life, tie into your life as a listener, and it's a lot of fun. So uh, I, I we've been on for a, f- a few months now, and the show's still growing and developing, And but it, it really is a great show. So you can find that uh, anywhere where you can download podcasts, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, etc. It's also a video version is online on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. And then uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Movies, And also I run a Patreon where we do things like watch-alongs and uh, movie trivia, Schmodown study sessions, and all this kind of fun interactive stuff. And that's at patreon.com slash Merle. And Dan, before we go, I want to know what you're most looking forward to when it comes to Netflix movies for the next couple of months in this bizarre Oscar season that we have coming up. I, I really, it really what I'm most looking forward to strangely is, is looking, going back and going back through 2020 and finding things like Enola Holmes. And uh, because I, there, there's so much that you miss things during the year. And so one of the things that I like about the end of every year, when things slow down just a little bit, although it's a little different for me this year, running my own channel is that I have that time to say, okay, let's go back and look at this release schedule. And there are always things that fall through the cracks. And so it's kind of filling in as many of those gaps for 2020 as I can. So that's always a nice end of the year thing for me is to sort of try to close the book on 2020 as much as I can before we open it back up in 2021. I love that. And listen, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. We're trying to highlight some of these titles that maybe you missed or just maybe there's too much when you open your Netflix and it's hard to navigate. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to point out these things that are worth your time. So helpful guides. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dan. We really appreciate it. Highly recommend every listener go follow Dan. It'll be the best entertainment related decision you make all week. Thank you so much. And that is it. New episodes of Must Watch Netflix Edition post every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.